You're listening to Unlocking Our Sound Heritage and Voices from the Second World War, brought to you by Manx National Heritage, the charity responsible for the Isle of Man's natural and cultural heritage. The sound recordings you'll hear today and throughout this series on Manx Radio are part of a unique collection of around 600 sound recordings digitised from the Manx National Heritage Sound Archive and available now online for the first time. The team at Manx National Heritage hope you enjoy eavesdropping on the voice clips we've chosen from the nation's sound archive, all of which can be listened to in full at imuseum.im. The Isle of Man, like other countries caught up in the bloody conflict, experienced the Second World War at home and overseas. The vivid memories retold to us by those who fought, defended, were interned, or simply witnessed events are powerful and authentic. None more so than in this 1989 interview with Lieutenant Colonel Brian Milchrist, who described answering the call in August 1939 at the Drill Hall, Douglas a week before war was declared. It's hard to remember. I mean, when you're 21, 22, and, and suddenly you're off, you know, you, you, you're, it, it's all the nitty-gritty things. You know, have I got everything I want? Is the uniform OK? And, and there probably wasn't much time to think about. Oh, <laughs> if it was only four or five hours, you wouldn't have no, the time that, to that's think. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and you're, things you were thinking That's about. right. So, so, so anyway, we... we uh, we, we, you put together what you think you need, uh, and you, you can't take a lot of stuff with you, obviously. You know, so we we uh, we act, we went down to the drill hall, and and the interesting thing was that uh, uh, as the men came in from all over the island, uh, we couldn't. There was no accommodation at the drill hall, so the arrangement was that we would, we would go down and get on the on the on the boat in the in Douglas Harbour and st- stay on it overnight so we went down we old kid slept you know we went to we slept on the ship and then nine o'clock the, f- the following morning off we off we went that was the way it went so what was it like when you'd actually left there was a, a huge amount of anticipation I would imagine well, well everybody was was very supportive you, you know what the Max people are like they were curious everybody knew what was going on so of course, as we were gathering together at the drill hall to go down to the ship, the crowds were developing and and and, and gave us good cheers. We we marched in groups down to the boat, you know, uh, and then when we sailed off at nine o'clock on the ordinary morning, morning sailing to Liverpool, this was a week before the war was declared. You see, so it was still reasonably peaceful sort of situation. Um, they gave us a good cheer, and off we went to off we went to Liverpool on the morning boat. Three years later, Brian found himself with the Manx Regiment manning anti-aircraft guns at the Battle of El Alamein, which turned the Desert War in favour of the Allies, but not without dreadful cost. You see, the thing about being shot at or bombed or whatever, you, you never think that you're the one that's going to be hit. I mean, that's the first thing. If you thought, I'm going out to commit suicide, you wouldn't do it anyway. Uh, and I can I can remember you know uh, uh, an incident that happened to me personally. I mean, in July of 1942, we were at the, in the Alamein position before the battle, and uh, um, we we uh, we were being attacked by by Stuka bombers uh, on this particular day, 
uh, in July and uh, I, I can remember seeing these planes come over and I, I was looking at them through my binoculars and uh, I said to the lads, I was quite near one of the guns, I said these are, these are for us, you better get onto them, you see. So we started firing at the guns, well and of course uh, the next thing I knew was that the bombs had landed on top of us, really. I mean, because the Stuka bombers, they, they, they died vertically, you see, uh, and, they, and, they, and they make a hell of a noise. And as they dive, the fellow points the plane at what he's attacking and then he pulls the plug and the, drops the bomb. So it, it's pretty accurate stuff. Anyway, by the time the dust had settled, um, I, I'd been hit and another couple of chaps had been hit and uh, um, two of the two of the lads were killed, but you know you you don't you you your reaction is is uh, is is interesting really because you you first of all say well I'm alive you know and the, your, uh, the instinct is to survive you don't actually uh, relate to the chaps who've been killed you you say oh you know that's rough or something you 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 don't you have to get on with it mm. you know and I mean uh, I was carted off but the, the 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 chaps who were there I mean I heard afterwards you know they just picked themselves up and uh, and you uh, you have to go through the business obviously of uh, burying the chaps who've been killed and and and, and then uh, replace them and patch the gun up if it's damaged and you get on with it Get on with it, they did. And you can hear more of how on imuseum.im. Poignantly, years later, at Al Alamein, when the dust had settled on graves and the guns had fallen silent, Brian visited the cemetery. We went to Alamein, to the, um, to the Imperial War Graves, the, the, the cemetery there, the Alamein, wonderful place. And I was able to find these two lads, you see, Condon and Harding from Castletown and uh, I found their graves and you know all those years later but I looked at the the, 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 the heading you know and of course we brought it home immediately because it, one was 22 and the other was 23 you know that's the way it was It wasn't only on foreign soil Manx men were prepared to fight Within a week of the call in May 1940, around 1,500 men had enlisted in the Isle of Man Home Guard, and it was in 1969, the 25th anniversary of its disbandment, that Manx Radio recorded our own Dad's Army. Here are T.R. Moore, Major Grove and Norman Crow, armed at first only with a walking stick, an armband and a wonderful spirit. And I can well remember the first evening uh, we were put up on a post overlooking the Peel Bay from the top of the cow. Uh, there were two of us put up there. All we had was a walking stick and an armband. And we, um, it was a beautiful May, uh, June evening, of course, warm weather. And I remember Mr. Howie coming round as the inspecting officer to see we were at our posts. And he said, now, are you two boys all right up here? We said, yes, we think we'll be all right. Well, he says, I'm all right because I've got a revolver. Well, I said, have you got any ammunition? He said, oh, no. <laughs> Just the revolver, no ammunition. But th this was really how it started in those early days, wasn't it? This is how it started. It was started very suddenly as the local defence volunteers, of course, an armband and a walking stick. Mm. 
But uh, being on an island in the centre of the Irish Sea, I think we were one of the first, really, to become very, very well equipped as a Home Guard unit. In the very early days, uh, I went to Selby, where the local platoon was known as Selby Cossacks. And the general commanding, Western Command, came with Colonel Scott. The men were dressed in demons, they just had rifles, and their drill was simply awful. There was one man, an ex-Navy man, who was just five foot one high, was four foot eleven round his stomach. And we cut down a pair, the largest size of demons and cut them down a foot so he uh, wasn't st stamping on them. The general saw the drill, turned to Colonel Scott and said, well, I don't think very much of their drill. Colonel Scott said, well, sir, he said, they can shoot and they can fight. So the general said, well, if that's so, I can soon test their shooting. I'm going to give a cup for the whole of the Western Command, the 100 battalions competing. Six months later, we shot for the cup. The first battalion were first, the second battalion was second, the whole of Western Command. My rain recollections of these, they're very, very vivid that we had the most wonderful spirit. We had young, we had old, we had from people from every walk of life. Just at Mackle, we had one boy of 15 who said he was 17. We had an old man who, when we came to find signed forms, saying people were, must be under 65, I said, you must be more than that, you've got both South African war medals. He said, yes, he said, I was a sergeant in 1890. <laughs> I said, how old are you? He said, I don't know. He said, I've lost my birth certificate. But he said, I feel much under 65. I said, right, sign on the dotted line, you're in. <laughs> oh, yes, on occasion it was quite laughable. I remember on one occasion, for instance, uh, we had at that time an elderly retired policeman from over the water who was a very uh, diligent member of the Home Guard, and uh, he was a sergeant at that time. And uh, that evening, there was an alert, and the sirens had gone, and uh, he was running up and down the village, shouting, Guard, turn out, with a loaded shotgun in his hands, and uh, probably there was just as much danger from him as there would have been at that time from an invasion. From an attack. Probably, yeah. yes. One can almost hear Lance Corporal Jones cry, Don't panic! Sound recordings on imuseum.im sometimes contain a dark comic humour, common at times of war and in the direst of situations. In June 1940, Captain Harry Kinley from Colby, aboard the Isle of Man steam packet vessel the Viking, helped evacuate 1,800 children from Guernsey, ahead of the Nazis' occupation. It was a sight he'd never forget when he spoke about it in 1996 to Manx National Heritage. into... Peter's port, alongside the jetty, it's a beautiful place. And here's a sight you'll never forget. There's a barracks come across up to the top of the key, like a right door with the key. Beyond that, then there's oh, about 1,800 children, 1,700 odd children. Some I haven't thought was wonderful. They had a gas mask and a little cup of butt and some sandwiches. Half them were eaten by that. Then beyond that, then, oh, about 50 yards or more beyond them, there's a barbed wire. And the parents were there, you see. Well, some kids were crying their hearts out. And I thought they were in a wonderful time, running around, you see. Well, that's all those children. You 
the 1800s, and the odd nun and the odd people. But while we are loading these these children, something rather funny, humorous again, a woman came staggering aboard, you see, hello officer, she said, do you want the key, it's the key of my, uh, my pub, she said, it's called uh, a Miss, Mrs. Savage, anyway. it's called the bull's head or something like that, you see, and you can have it, but I'm not going to give that bloody head unless you said. <laughs> Here, you, oh, there's the captain, see, there's the captain rides on your lady, I'd like to speak to you. Oh, there's a segment, he wants us to give you a pub. So far we've heard from the men, time we heard from the women, starting with Pamela Clark, who in 1940 was Private Bradley of the Auxiliary Territorial Service, sent in the summer of 1940 to train as a Y-Signals operator for six months at Palace Camp, Douglas. It was all very secret. Well, Private Bradley, I don't know what you are going to do because it's all very secret but you are going to be a Y signals operator and I don't know anything about it I can't tell you but you will find out where you go I don't know where you're going when you're posted and that was it and when the posting actually came uh, to my joy and delight I found it was to the Isle of Man and having been told about the secrecy I rang up my parents from Scotland and I said, I'm being posted to the place where we last went for our holidays. And I thought, well, the Germans could work that one out. Pamela describes a typical relentless day learning Morse code. We're up early. I thought it was early anyway. It was probably about seven o'clock and paraded, had breakfast in the hydro, breakfast in the hydro, which was our dining quarters. And uh, then we were marched to our hotel for the morning's work. And uh, once we got in the set room, it was relentless. We put the earphones on our head and we were taught Morse by the signals. The uh, instructor would say, this is A, didar. And he would, and this is N, dardit. And he he would just make us listen to those sounds, you see. And eventually, as we progressed, um, we were listening to the sounds. He would talk to us whilst we were listening. He would put music on. He would ask us questions because he wanted the signal to come from the brain to the hand without us thinking. And as we were going to take messages in code... This was an advantage because we wouldn't guess what the next letter was going to be. I found that I couldn't take English Morse because I would be thinking, oh, A-N and the next letter's D. And you see, it might not have been, it might have been another, you know, not and. And the, the, the advantage of this was that as it was all going to be sent to when we were on, when we were actually on duty, that it was going to be sent to Bletchley Park, Station X. Um, we must get every, every letter right, because otherwise it would gum up the Enigma machines. The Isle of Man can lay proud claim to training women who later passed intercepted enemy communications to Bletchley Park. The rest, as they say, is history. After the Isle of Man, Pamela went to work as a Y-Signals operator in Harrogate, but she always remembered fondly her time spent training in Douglas. 
being on the Isle of Man, particularly as I arrived in the summer, it was wonderful because we could just at the end of the day slip across the road and go and have a dip in the sea. We thought we were in paradise. The island was blacked out, of course, but um, there were plenty of dances and there was a wonderful naffy somewhere in Douglas, can't remember where it was, cinemas, dancing, and because we were all boys and girls of eight, 18, 19, 20, that's all, and all of the same level of education, um, you know, it was, it was just wonderful. It was a wonderful camp, palace camp. It was a wonderful camp. That word camp meant something very different to the thousands of Germans and Italians living in Britain upon the outbreak of war who were arrested and sent to the Isle of Man. Sisters Rosemary and Anita Dalheim, aged 15 and 12, arrived with their mother and baby sister in Douglas from their home in Hull on the 29th of May, 1940. Here in these short clips, taken from a much longer 1994 interview on imuseum.im, they recall their experience from arrival to staying in a Port Erin boarding house with other women internees to the reaction of the locals. Then we walked out and along, all along the quayside to the railway station. It's and quite there a again, long walk, isn't it? The Manx people we were lined up. And what was the master race? And with? this one man, he said it. Huh! I mean, I heard it and nobody else said, Well, I mean, he just said when we passed. Oh, he said, look at it took one look at us. <laughs> not these visage, but not <laughs> very said, different. They call themselves the master race. Oh, and it made me <laughs> so cross. You know, at first you accept it, and then later on the ruction started. You know, who she thinks she is. And, you know, Germans are very, very class conscious. Very class conscious. You're deep as own, you know. Yeah, so is she telling me to put my knitting somewhere else? Or and, so then the row started. And it's all in my diary, M slapped K and K slapped so so. We were a cold, you know, we'd never seen behaviour like that. We before. heard language we never knew existed, these women screeching at each other. I mean, our family kept so... out of it. No, just women who, who'd left the kitchen dirty or who hadn't done their duty with hanging up the tea towels. Petty. Just yeah. silly things. What did the locals think about you going into a shop and buying? Oh, they probably well, they'd have had good business. They would have normally been the end of season. So they were all gorgeous. It was just, well, you wanted well, to talk to Mona and all the people. Yes, for, for us they it was just normal living. I mean, you go with your mother, she'd tell you, you need some new shoes, you go to a shoe shop, you buy a it was fruit So free, it was like being on holiday. We were just. And we could walk from Port Erin to Port They probably just looked upon us as extended holiday makers. So there's no animosity there at all? Never. Well, not that we noticed, ever. Mona Quillen was one local instructed to take in internees at her boarding house in Port St Mary. Although most of those interned were not sympathetic to the Nazi cause, in this interview with Manx National Heritage curator Matthew Richardson in 2004, she described how in the back kitchen she challenged the views of one female internee. She used to come into the back kitchen, you know, when you'd be getting me, and she'd stand behind you and she'd say, oh, Hitler will be in the Tower of London next week. And she meant that quite seriously. Yes, yes. Yes, and uh, there was uh, another one, I can't think. Was it Kintovich? She's from East Prussia, I think. She was was in, she'd been working in this school too. Mm. And she had rather strong sympathies. 
So how did you answer back when she said something oh, well like I that? Well, I stuck my chin out <laughs> and said, not in your life. <laughs> the lived experience of Second World War internment in the Isle of Man speaks through the voices of those who were there. This is the start of a talk by Dr Klaus Hinrichsen, an internee at Hutchinson Square Camp Douglas, recorded at the Manx Museum in 1991. The words barbed wire and bugle plunge us into a time of war. Fifty years ago, to the day, I wrote this letter to my future wife in London. <laughs> my address was P. Kemp, Hutchinson Square Internment Camp, Douglas, Isle of Man. I could not write very fast with a fountain pen as the fold and tuck in letter had been heavily coated with some glossy substance which would disclose my use of any invisible ink. (laughs) I counted the lines. I was only allowed 24 lines, and I was not supposed to write very small or very compressed letters. Once finished, my letter would have to be read by the military censor who was already snowed under by incoming and outgoing mail. And it would take a long time to reach the person to whom it was meant to be sent. This time, nothing had been blotted out, and the censor put his label onto it, examiner number 5408. I wrote in German. The intelligence officer had posted a note in the camp saying, I prefer your letters being written in German. That I can understand. Your English, I cannot. (laughs) Looking up, I saw a stockade of barbed wire, 10 foot high, and beyond it, a soldier in battle fatigue with tin helmet and a bayonet mounted on his rifle patrolling a small stretch of a rectangular compound known as Hutchinson Square, which housed 1,500 male internees. All were German and Austrian nationals. Soon the bugle would sound to call me to the evening roll call outside my house to be counted and recounted and recounted again It never tallied. Victory in Europe happened in the early hours of the 8th of May, 1945. Ida Arden remembers getting up and joining the crowds on Douglas Promenade. It was a night to remember. Now, when the war was declared over, it happened late at night, or should I say, in the early hours of the morning. Oh boy, that was wonderful. We all got up and dressed and ran down the road to the promenade. We had dancing and singing and the boats were blowing, the hooters, church bells were ringing, everybody was singing and dancing until we went home about 8 o'clock next morning. It was a night that we'll never forget. There was hundreds and hundreds of people on the promenade. Some of them out in their night dresses even, they didn't bother to get dressed, they just put dressing gowns on them. And there was even two pianos rolled out onto the promenade. It was just wonderful it was to think that the world the world was at peace once again. 
and our boys would be coming home. Brothers and husbands, oh, it was a wonderful time. We started this programme with the memories of Lieutenant Colonel Brian Milchreest, so it feels fitting to end with those from another Manx Regiment veteran, John Stevenson. John fought on Crete, where he was taken prisoner by the Germans. His account of the dive bombing by Stukas is vivid and terrifying. Fate has a strange thing, but we stopped once at... um the Stukas had come over, you know, it's too, you know about the Stukas, they were dive bombers that dived down and they had special equipment on that whistled, you know, that frightening. Mm. And they used to release their bombs as they dived and then pull out. And we dived into this uh, wood to, um, to sort of get cover more than anything else. And uh, this chap pulled up behind us in, in on my bike and that's the last I saw him. And, uh, He's now buried on Crete, but I, I don't know what happened to him. But, you know, it could have been me. <laughs> oh, that was it. So eventually we walked. We had to abandon again all the all the wagons. Everything was abandoned. And we walked most of the 40 miles over the mountains to, to uh, Svarkir. And um, we had to hide in the caves during the day because the... Germans were back and forward with their fighter planes looking for strafing and, and bombing and whatever. And uh, then we, each night we had to go down to the beach to await the Navy coming in to take us off. And uh, we were actually on the water's edge when uh, uh, Colonel Kevlong said, well, I'm sorry, gentlemen, they're not taking any more off and uh, tomorrow we'll be uh, surrendering to the Germans. So that was it. Heartwarming is his recollection of finally making it home to his family in Balasala after the war. It must have been a scene of return repeated throughout the island, one tinged with joy, relief and shock. The captain of, of I think it was the Russian castle we came on uh, the boat, the captain said, now they'll, they'll have a welcoming party uh, there with the band and everything. And I said, well, we don't want, we don't want any fuss. We just want to get home. He said, OK, he said, I'll see the dear. He don't, which we didn't. My mother and father and sisters were, were there to meet us, and uh, uh, they didn't have cars then. And, and, and I remember going on the bus, and I could always remember. I lived in Balasella then. I don't know if you know Balasella. Mm-hmm. Well, you know where you know where the pub is? Yeah. Well, the, the post office on the right then. We got off the bus, and we walked down, and just... As I reached the corner, a girl who was at school the same time as everyone, who lived just near me anyway, she just saw me and she burst into tears. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm not that bad, surely. Uh, I don't know whether the shock was seeing them because I was thin and you know, dreadfully thin. Thanks for listening to Voices from the Second World War. Join us again next week for holiday voices from unlocking our sound heritage or in the meantime listen again on the podcast available on the manx radio website you can visit imuseum.im and click on unlocking our sound heritage to listen to these and many more sound recordings from the manx national heritage sound archive to find out more about the charity manx national heritage and how you can support us visit our website manxnationalheritage.im or join us on facebook (laughs) 